And it appears, Lord willing, I'll be here for the next few months. So, I ask your indulgence. If I don't get all your names right the first time, I will do my best to remember. Actually, you know, I'm actually writing them all down. So, I hope you give me some forbearance as I seek to, to learn your names, okay? I'd ask you to uh, turn in your Bibles now to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to follow as I read chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, uh, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit." Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, once more we come to you in worship to hear you speak to us. Father, help us to understand that these words were not addressed just to an ancient church years ago, but you've always intended them to be addressed to us in the 21st century. Help us then to hear and then, Lord, to obey and to Orient our lives according to your word. Help us to listen now to your voice as we um, see it in Scripture. You are good. You are gracious to us. Help us now in this hour, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Petersons seemed like such a nice couple. Um, At first, they couldn't say enough good things about the church. Man, they were enthused about it. They loved it. They said to the elders as they were coming in, you know what? We have been looking for a church like this for years, and now we finally found it, the church that that really has it together, we really love. But then after about a year, their enthusiasm seems to wear off, and their attendance becomes a bit sporadic. And finally, they're not coming at all. Now, the elders, you know, being shepherds that they are, trying to contact them, trying to get together with them, and contact them several times, and finally they're able to meet with them. And here's what they hear. You know, there's just no joy anymore at church, and we thought it was just time to move on. And quite frankly, we've lost confidence in the elders, and they're just not what we thought they were when we first came. 
Finally, of course, a letter arrives from another church uh, talking about their transfer of membership, which you give, but with a little bit of sadness in your heart. The questions have already been circulating around the congregation. It's not a very big congregation, and questions are starting to circle around the congregation. What happened to the Petersons? Aren't they coming any longer? Have they joined another church? What's going on? And all in all, it discourages the whole church. Now, if you think I've picked on someone that you know, I haven't. I just see this happening all over in churches everywhere, Bible-believing churches. The relationship of Christians today to their churches looks less like a commitment to a spiritual community and more like a game of musical chairs. Some of you here this morning may be tottering on the edge. You may be thinking of leaving, ready to jump ship and go somewhere else. Why do these things happen? What's going on? Why is this so common in churches today? Well, part of the dissatisfaction comes from the fact that Christians don't know what to expect from their church. They don't know what to expect. They come with all kinds of expectations or expectations grow. Um, And when they're not met in the present congregation, they go somewhere else where they think those expectations can be met. And frankly, they misunderstand what the church is all about. Now, the Apostle Paul gives you an understanding here of what to expect as he relates his own experience in ministry in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, the text that we just read. Now he writes this book to combat um, a particular but insidious kind of teaching that is invading the church at Colossae. It is this. You know, Jesus is important. In fact, Jesus is absolutely foundational. But you need more knowledge in order to do and to be what God expects you to do and be. And we've got that knowledge. Again, they will say, let's make it clear. Jesus is absolutely important. But you need a little bit more, right? If you're going to navigate life, you don't just need scriptures which reveal Jesus, you need something more if you're going to make it. Now, after introducing the epistle in which he speaks in in magnificent ways about the supremacy of Jesus, in, in verse 24, he digresses for a moment to tell you about his ministry in the church of Colossae. He says, in light of the Savior who's above all creation, who is the Lord of the church, reconciling sinners to him, let me tell you what serving him is like. Let me just give you an insight about what serving him is like. And in this description of his ministry, he helps you understand what to expect from Christ's church. As we look at these, you can see embedded in them what you ought to expect from your church. Here's the first. Expect a community of hope. Expect a community of hope. Verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Now, Paul has a message to proclaim Christ, to proclaim this mystery of Christ that was hidden in ages past. Now, I don't know about you. You ever seen a detective program, a a television program called Monk, right? Their crime is committed. You know it right from the beginning, but no one can figure it out until this this, uh, detective struggling with obsessive-compulsive disorder um, pieces all the little bits of evidence together and puts them together and figures out how the crime happened. All right? And it's a mystery because he had to figure out who done it by putting together all the pieces of evidence. And when he puts it all together, you can see how it all works out. Well, when Jesus revealed himself to Paul and taught Paul and Paul in his own studies, put together the pieces of the Old Testament so that they made sense. There was something going on in the Old Testament. It, it, it didn't quite fit until Jesus came, and then you can see how all the pieces lock how they all fit together. He knew from the Old Testament that God had some kind of purpose for the Gentiles. You can read that in the Old Testament. You see that. But, but they couldn't figure that out. We're the covenant people of God. What's this about Gentiles becoming part of this? And then Jesus came and died and was raised for sinners. And that by faith in him, Gentiles and Jews now are brought together into the new people of God. All that now comes together in the light of Jesus coming. And not only that, but Christ would be in them so that they can be assured of the fullness of glory. Jesus has produced a community of believers characterized then by hope. Hope of the glory. There are people of hope. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat with a person who's been depressed. And they have no hope. They just can't see their way out. Just this last week, just this last week, I had a friend of mine, an Albanian pastor that I've gotten to know over the years as I've been in Albania, a friend of mine this last week committed suicide, pastor. And another mutual friend of ours, a missionary there by the name of Blair, was the one who was really working hard with him and trying to help him. And and he never could... He never could seem to get hope. He never could see past what was happening to him. And so he finally took his life. But you see, Jesus has come to give us hope. Because Christ has proclaimed in this congregation, this community of believers, you have hope in a hostile world. This needs to be a community of hope. Because we live in a hostile world. And where are you going to get hope? You know what? Christians are looking all over the place for hope, forgetting that just this, just this gathering together as we're going to see, just being a part of the body is what communicates hope. Where Christ is proclaimed, hope grows. And as you're together, hope grows. What you need in a world that's against you, what you need in your own discouragements and difficulties. Now, in producing that hope, the Apostle Paul was willing to suffer. He says that in verse 24. Suffering plays a part. Now, right away, we're thrown off by that statement. Um, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. It's like, wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus' atonement wasn't enough? No, that's not what he's saying. Because in chapter 2, if you look at it, verses 13 and 14, he writes this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... 
God made, alive, uh, made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think Paul would be an incredibly fool within a few breaths. He's talking about how Jesus is enough after he's just said he's not. And so he can't be saying that Jesus... Um, uh, 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 that Jesus' death and his atonement proved insufficient to turn away the wrath of God. So what is he saying? Well, the common understanding in Paul's day was that there would be suffering related to the Messiah, to the Christ. There would be suffering. Before Messiah revealed himself, his people would suffer. There would be a certain amount of affliction that they had to suffer before they would see Messiah. And we know that's true because before Jesus reveals himself again, we're all, what? We're all going to suffer, right? There's a, there's a set amount of afflictions, it appears, that we're going to suffer. And Paul essentially is saying, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to take upon myself more of those sufferings for the church's sake. I'm willing to suffer for the church. Now, what you, need to, what you need to really focus on here is his attitude. This is what's important for us, is his attitude. His willingness to suffer and sacrifice for the congregation. He's willing to suffer and sacrifice for the congregation. And so the question always has to come to you, do you have the same attitude? Do you have the same attitude? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of this body of believers? Do you love this body like Jesus loved it? That's a real important question to ask. If Jesus loved the church, and we always start thinking expansive terms, the church worldwide, and so forth. No. If Jesus loves this church, do you love it too? You know, oftentimes when people are fussing or wanting to leave or they don't like it anymore you know the question always comes to my mind why don't you love what Jesus loves loves this church you ought to love it too and and for the sake of this church you have to be willing to sacrifice you have to be willing to sacrifice time you have to be willing to sacrifice time you have to be willing to have your heart broken by others because if you're part of a relationship Heartbreak is inevitable. After 38 years of ministry, let me tell you something. Heartbreak is inevitable. And are you willing to, to risk that, right? Are you willing to invest in people and still have your heart broken? There's too many people who say, ah, boy, you know, every time I do that, I get hurt. Well, okay, you do. But is Jesus worth it, right? Is Jesus worth it? Do you love his church like he does? Are you willing to have outsiders laugh at you and call you hypocritical or judgmental? You know, you know what it's like. You have a church in a small town. I remember, and LaRue is only like about 700 people, right? So when things happen in our church, everybody knows about it, right? When we discipline somebody, everybody in town knows about it. It eventually gets out. And we're called judgmental and hypocritical. We've even been called a cult, right? Are we willing to take that sort of thing? Are we willing to give up some of the things that you love to do and possess so that you can give yourself to the ministry of the church? You see, if you're on a community of hope, 
that encourages and fuels your work for the Lord and helps you stand up in a hostile world, you have to be willing to suffer and sacrifice for the congregation. If you want hope, suffering's involved. Too often, we don't want a community of hope. What we want is what I call the, the, um, the uh, comfy Christian life. The comfy Christian life. I know what that's all about. I mean, I went through that stage. Um, I got out of seminary. Um, and frankly, um, and it's kind of a long story. I got out of seminary in 81, came to LaRue in 85, and so for those four years, you know, I would be candidating in churches and no one wanted me. And there were reasons for that. But um, I can remember in those years, we lived the comfy Christian life. Yeah, I could go to church and I could teach a, an adult class and have good, come home, have a good job, come home at night and relax and go to church on Sunday and do our thing. It's the comfy Christian life. It's like, yeah, this is nice. This is nice. But... Um, and we go to church and, you know, we, we want to study the Bible. We want to get goosebumps. But we just don't really want to suffer for her, right? Um, if you want a congregation that gives you hope, you have to be willing to suffer for Jesus. You have to be willing, like the Apostle Paul, to take on suffering in order that there is hope in the congregation. But that's not the only thing that produces hope. If you want a congregation characterized by hope, then become the church's servant, so he says in verse 25, this is a fad. This to me is, is something that we really need to get into our minds, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. I became a minister. Now, what does it mean to be a minister? That's the way it's translated here. The word is diakonos. What do we get from that? Do you know? You, you don't have to be Greek scholars to get that one. We get deacon. Now, the word diakonos is very is only a couple times used of the official office. It's used all over the New Testament. A diakonos is a servant, or if you will, listen, a table waiter. A table waiter. Are you willing to become a diakonos, a table waiter, for the sake of Christ here in, in Arlington? Now, you think about that, a table waiter. Think about going to a restaurant and the waitress is there. Here's what I've noticed most people do. They're chatting with each other. They're having a good time and... The waitress comes, and what does she do? She takes their orders. Yeah, I'll take the, uh, I'll take the, 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 blue, um, the blue hamburger, but, but could, you know, could, you leave, could you leave off the blue cheese on that one? And um, I want a Coke, but listen, I, only about, okay, only about like half a glass of ice. I don't want too much. You know, everybody's doing all this stuff, and... And she does it. She comes back with it. And you're talking. You don't even look up as she puts the plates in front of you. And then as she comes to give you more Coke, there's not a break in the conversation. She just comes and fills your, fills your glass. And you don't recognize her. You don't look at her. You don't even acknowledge her. But she's doing her job. That's what you have to be willing to do for a community of hope. Be that kind of a servant. Now I can remember a conversation I had with with a friend of mine, because this reminds me that in our Christian culture, we're losing that view. Instead of servants and table waiters, we've become consumers. We have become consumers. And I was talking with my friend Steve one time, and we happened to be in a Kroger store, right? And in this Kroger store, they had a little section 
fenced off for kids. So you could leave your kids there to play with the toys while you shopped. So now you're going to go to Kroger's instead of Myers because, man, I get to have a child-free shopping experience. Right? Or we go to this store because it gives me more, bu- more, more bang for my buck. Right? We're consumers. We're always going someplace that gives us the better deal. Well, that's what's happened to us in our churches. I'll remain loyal to this church until some other church gives me a better product, a youth group, better music, a, um, um, a ministry for mothers of preschool kids. And so we're going to get more for a buck over there, so we leave here and go there. That consumer mentality, rather than a servant mentality, grips too many Christians today. Now, I don't know you. I don't know you very well. So, well, I said this at our church as well, but I'm going to say it here. Some of you may be consumers. Maybe you're consumers. You show up, you get what you want, but you really don't want to serve. You get what you want, and then you go home. Let me ask you, do you love what Jesus loved and died for? Do you love the church enough to become her servant Or would you rather be a consumer? What is it? By the way, how do you know if you're a servant? How do you know if you're a servant? Here's how you know. Check your attitude when someone treats you like a servant. Check your attitude when someone treats you like they treat a waitress. Okay? And if your attitude is still one of love and I want to serve the church, then you're a servant. But watch your attitude. That's how you can tell whether you're a servant or not. So God creates a community of hope and he sustains it through people who are willing to serve. Now, many say you need more than Jesus, but God says we have a community of hope by proclaiming the hope of Christ. Now he goes on. He says, not, don't just expect a community of hope. Expect a community of Christ-centered change. <clears throat> expect a community of Christ-centered change, verses 28 and 29. And I'm changing one word here for a reason. I'll tell you in a second. Him we proclaim, admonishing or counseling everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In response to those who say, you need more than just Christ in order to navigate life in today's world, in order to do what God expects, in order to flourish, you need, Jesus is important, but you need a little bit more Paul replies this, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim him. We proclaim this mystery, Jesus. We proclaim the hope of glory, Jesus. He's the one that we proclaim. We proclaim him by teaching Christ, he says. You you have to find in this church the public proclamation of the living Lord Jesus, a a systematic, comprehensive teaching of Christ. Not merely stuff about Jesus, but Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Every public proclamation ought to have Jesus as its center. Every time you hear the word of God expounded, it ought to leave you at the feet of Jesus. Uh, 
a man who's been very influential in my thinking and in my ministry is a guy named Jay Adams. He went to be with the Lord a couple years ago. But I remember Jay writing in one of his books this. You ought to preach in such a way that that sermon would offend anybody in a synagogue or a Unitarian church. That is to say, you ought to, every sermon you preach should, should be so Christ-centered that it would offend people in a synagogue and it would offend the Unitarians. That's how Christ has to be central. And so he says, we proclaim Christ, we proclaim Jesus by teaching him. Okay? We proclaim him. How? Teaching and, if you will, counseling. That word that's translated warning here is the Greek word that comes closest to what we understand as counseling. It's personal face-to-face, personal face-to-face Ministry of the Word of God for the purpose of change. Careful, personal admonition, counseling, if you will. And so publicly, the public proclamation of the Word and the private proclamation of the Word has to be centered on Jesus. And so our counseling here must not concern itself with self-esteem or self-adjustment or even as its goal, personal happiness, right? And not merely change. It's got to be change that is motivated by, guided by, goal-oriented by Jesus himself. When you think about it, he is the goal. What is the purpose of the ministry of the word of God? It is change into the likeness of Christ. It is all about becoming like Jesus. He's the goal. He gives hope through the gospel. No one grows unless they are convinced that they are accepted by God. That's why the gospel is so important in a Christian's life. Not just when you're converted, but for the long haul until glory. Gospel, the gospel is essential because no one changes. No one is going to change in the long run unless they are convinced that they are accepted by God. Now that's totally counterintuitive, isn't it? We think change comes through threats. No, The New Testament makes it clear that grace fuels growth and change. And so Jesus gives hope through the gospel. I am the Savior who makes you acceptable to God. You may have had a horrible week. Your only hope is Jesus. And if you believe that he's your only hope, even after a horrible week, you'll grow. You'll grow. He promises to deliver us from the corruption that is in the world. I love in 1 Peter chapter 1, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where it tells us that we escape the corruptions of the world through the promises of God. He makes us promises that outweigh the promises of corrupt desires. Checking my time because I'm, I feel like going on a rant right now. Okay, so I'm going to go on this rant. Here it is. Here it is. Whenever you're, I love what John Piper says, you, you never sin out of duty. You never get up in the morning going, oh man, ugh, I got to lie today. I don't want to lie, but I'm compelled to lie. No, you're not. No one ever sins out of duty. What happens? Desire is at the root of every sin. James 1, 13 through 15. Ephesians 4, 
Put off the old man, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Whenever you're tempted to sin, you're tempted because desire says something to you. It says, give in and you'll be happy. Give in and you'll be fulfilled. Take revenge. Make him pay and you will be satisfied. Right? So desire is whispering in your ear. But then there's Jesus who says, love your enemy. Don't take revenge. Paul says, vengeance is, God says, vengeance is mine. You don't have the right to take vengeance. So, and then you have Jesus saying to you, making this promise. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And so here's what Peter says. You escape the corruption of the desires by what? Believing the promises of God. Always remember this. When you're at the crossroad of temptation, there's a desire that's saying to you, do this and you'll be fulfilled. Do this and you'll flourish. And it will never pay off. And so Jesus promises to deliver us from the corruption of those desires. Believe his promises over the promises of those desires. He promises victory on that great day when he comes again, we will be vindicated before the world. He com- his commands have to become the pattern of our life. Jesus' commands aren't just something that are nice and nifty and aren't those great teachings. They have to become the very core, the very pattern of our life. And so he says to us, we proclaim him in our preaching, in our counseling. And what is the goal of all this public and private ministry? Do you notice this? He says in verse 28, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 28, that we, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. These, I have taken this, um, these verses as the description of my ministry. Every time, every time I preach, and every time I counsel, I'm aiming at people changing so that they can give a good account of themselves to Jesus when they stand before him. That's the goal of all my preaching. That's the goal of all my ministry of the word, public and private, is so that people will be able to give account of themselves, a good account of themselves to Jesus when they stand before him. Every time I get in the pulpit, I'm aiming for change. And so what he is saying to us here. This is what it's about. It's about change. It's about becoming like Jesus. And you should expect Christ to be proclaimed with great fervency. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. As part of this church, you ought to expect that its members give themselves to exhausting themselves for Christ's message. He says... I toil, I labor. That word means work to exhaustion. I struggle, which is the Greek word agonizomai. What word do we get from that? You bet. I I am, am preaching and ministering Christ with labor that is exhausting, agonizing over it. Okay? Agonizing. And what does he say? God works through the agonizing effort of bringing bringing Christ to the lives of people. Now, you know, we all tend to read over the Bible very quickly. I want you to look carefully at verse 29. Now look carefully. What does it say? 
It says, for this I toil, struggling, agonizing, with what? All his energy that he powerfully works within me. People often ask the question, how do I know if it's my strength or Christ's strength? That's the question all the time. People ask that question. Well, here's the answer. It's right here. It's you. It's Jesus. It's both. I love Dick Lucas, who was a pastor in London. He said this one time, the evidence that God is at work is that you're at work. When resurrection power is at work, man is at work. How do you know, how do you know God is at work? When you're struggling to exhaustion, when you're agonizing, that's how you know God's at work. Please note what he says. I struggle, I work to exhaustion. Right? If God were doing it, I shouldn't be exhausted, right? If God were doing it, I shouldn't be agonizing, right? No, just the opposite. He says, I struggle and I I labor and I struggle with all, right? He's working to exhaustion. He's agonizing with what? All of God's power that's working within me. So, you know what? If you're struggling and you're, you're agonizing, you're laboring for the sake of Christ, God's at work. God's at work. Now, why are people's lives a shambles? Why is it that people find it necessary to leave? Because so many of them, so many of them are not satisfied with the preaching of Jesus. They're not satisfied with the preaching of Christ. They want more than a fervent proclamation of Jesus. They don't want to hear that God expects them to change. They don't want to hear that change requires effort. You should expect that Christ will be changed or Christ will be proclaimed publicly and privately so that you will change and grow. If you don't want to become a consumer, then invest yourselves in a congregation that expects change. I say this to people wherever I go. I would hope that if you came to LaRue Baptist Church and grabbed one of our members by the lapels and say, what does God expect? I would hope that every one of them would say to you, God expects me to grow and change. That's what God expects. So, expect a community of Christ-centered change. That should be one of your expectations. And if that is what you strive for, then you will live in an atmosphere of expectant change. And you will love it. You will love it. Now the last thing he says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. By the way, always remember that chapter divisions don't mean anything. Someone has once said that the chapter divisions were put in the Bible by a man who had paper and ink and was riding across the country on his horse in the dark. And whenever the horse stumbled, his pen hit the paper. And that's where the chapter divisions come in. No, it's not entirely true. But learn to read the Bible. And because in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he's still talking about ministry. He's still talking about his ministry before he changes back to his original theme in verse 6. So here's what he says. He says, expect a community of love. All right? 
Expect a community of hope. Expect a community of Christ-centered change. And expect a community of love. He says, I am struggling for you and other churches. And, it, and here's what he says. That they may be encouraged in heart, being united in love. Now what's he saying here? God says that you are encouraged as you cultivate love in the congregation. If you want to see others encouraged, if you need encouragement, then you and others must join yourself to a community of believers who love. Who love one another. Do you know what complaint I hear from people who often leave church? They say, there's just no joy here. There's not, just no joy here. But what's interesting, here's what I also observe. Almost always, the person who says that is someone who comes to church one hour a week. All right? If you want joy, then you have to invest yourself in a community of love, in this community of love. If you want joy, it requires your investment. Notice, he says, they may be encouraged. How? By being united or welded or compacted in love. Okay? They're encouraged because they're welded together in love. Now look, my, my dear wife Becca and I, whom I hope you will meet in another couple weeks, my dear wife Becca and I have a great marriage. And we had our ups and downs. We had our ups and downs. There's no doubt about it. But you know what? We've invested our lives in one another, right? We kept our vows. We invested in one another. And because of that, I can say we have a great deal of joy in our marriage. We do. Now, there are, yeah, there are unpleasant times. Well, it's not happy all the time. But it's joyful most of the time. We have a great marriage. Why? Why? Because we stuck it out. Good times, bad times. We, right? And listen, okay? This applies in marriages. This applies in churches. Love grows. Love grows in the rich soil of commitment. You're committed to one another, and that's how love is going to grow. There are times when Becca did not feel like loving me, and there were times when I didn't feel like loving her, right? There were times when I would say, and this is real early on, real early on, there were times when I would say, oh, I could just go to New York City right now and just disappear, right? But I couldn't do that. Why not? Because I'd made some vows. I had to be committed to her. And because of that commitment, I can honestly say, I don't feel like going and disappearing in New York City anymore. All right? Because of that commitment. Same thing is true in the congregation of God's people. You are encouraged in heart because being united, welded together in love. But notice that more than that occurs. More than that occurs. Notice this. And this to me was an incredible revelation as I studied through this passage. Notice what he says here. That being knit together in love in order to reach 
All the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Wow. The cultivation of love in the church results in a deeper, fuller understanding of Jesus himself. Because you're knit together, you're going to, you're going to know Jesus better. You can fully learn and appropriate Jesus Christ only within the context of a loving community of his disciples. Wow, that's amazing to me. If you really want to know Jesus, come to a full understanding of the riches in Jesus, then you have to be part of a loving community of believers. Nothing and no one outside of this community of the church can give you anything more of benefit than what you receive here. If you, were, if you want to really know Jesus, you cannot fully learn him outside of a community of loving disciples. Now, let, hear, hear me out. No extra church group, no radio program, right? No television program. None of those can ever fully teach you Christ. Yes, they can teach you Christ, and there's profit in it. But no one will ever take you to the point where you really know Christ unless it's done right here in a community of believers. When a, cult, when a congregation cultivates love for one another, their Christ in his fullness can be learned. Now, you know, you're not going to get that fullness of understanding Jesus in navigators or crew. And again, I'm not, I'm not taking shots at those, those groups. They do wonderful work on college campuses. But don't think that becoming part of that group will bring you to a fuller understanding of Jesus. It's got to be within a congregation of people who are knit together in love. You will then be able to learn Christ at a deeper level. I mean, that's what the text says. This is what shocked me when he says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love in order, that's, that can be translated, in order to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It's amazing to me. And knowing Christ in that community of loving disciples puts you in the possession of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you need. All the treasures of wisdom, wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ. Now, um, you can turn on the radio today, Christian radio I mean, and you can hear all kinds of Christians spouting off psychological stuff. And they will be saying to you, you know Jesus Jesus is foundational. We need Jesus, but you also need this. Hmm. God says that as you invest yourself in this community, you will know Christ better and come into contact with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you need for life. God makes all the treasures for living available to anyone who makes the effort to know Jesus as he participates in the life of the church. As you participate in the life of the congregation, you possess all that is necessary, verse 4, to keep you from deception. And verse 5, to produce stability. And so if you want to be an overcomer, you should expect encouragement as you fully know Jesus within the church. And you should expect all the wisdom you need to live life 
and keep you in the truth and provide stability. So, what does God tell us then? He says, if you're going to be what you want, what, if you're going to be what he wants you to be, and if the church is going to be what it should be, you ought to expect a community of hope. You ought to expect a community that, that um, proclaims Christ-centered change, and you ought to expect a community of love. Those are the expectations we're to have. And if those are the expectations and we work toward them, you won't be a consumer. You won't be a consumer. And so we need to glorify Christ and exalt him the only way possible. You need to expect suffering servanthood, energized by hope in Jesus. You need to expect change as the church proclaims Christ. You need to expect a loving community that ministers encouragement and a fuller understanding of Jesus. That's what our expectations ought to be. May God help us to to make those our own, to make them truly what we are striving for and what we expect. Father, thank you for the abundance of your word that dissects life better than anything out there, that gives us answers, better answers than anything we could hope for. We pray, Lord, that you would cause this to be a matter of consideration, of meditation this week for your people here. We pray that they would think about that. Pray, Father, that they would um, look at their own hearts in light of your word. So God, help them, I pray, for your glory and for their good. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.